Guys, we've been preaching through uh, a series. We've been going through the book of Acts. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. Um, It's an historical book, and it's also a book that sets the precedent, several layers of precedence for what it means to be the church that's built upon and centered around Jesus and his mission in the world. It hasn't changed, and as a church, we don't want to reinvent the Jesus thing. We simply want to be the church that he started and follow him faithfully. So we've been going through the book of Acts in order to to really get to grips with what that means. It just so happens that we don't need to take a break from Acts for Easter, because Acts 17 takes us right to the resurrection of Christ. It's like someone planned it. (laughs) So if you have a Bible or a digital contraption, you can open it to Acts chapter 17, or you can simply read along from the screen. You guys ready? Pray for us. Father, thank you for the book of Acts. Thank you that by your spirit you... You've recorded events. You've used people to write down the things that you've accomplished in history and all of the implications and the reality that your spirit is still at work today, continuing to complete what you began then, nearly 2,000 years ago. And so I pray that this morning... Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds. Help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. We've been reading about uh, Paul. He used to be named Saul. Had this real experience, encounter with Jesus, whom he was convinced was dead. Turns out he was very much alive. He meets This gentleman, Paul, on a dirt road on his way to um, uh, Tarsus, Paul Tarsus, going to Damascus, thank you. (laughs) Had a bad pastor moment. (laughs) And he encounters Jesus. He realizes how incredibly wrong he's been. And now he's being used by Jesus to spread the message, the good news, the gospel, as we say, that Jesus is alive and he wants to bring new life to the world. And we pick up here. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, his friends, Timothy and Silas, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So, He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, Greek philosophers, also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because who was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. 
We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Let's pause there. Go back, please. Just a couple of preliminary points that we, we have to highlight. Number one, it says that he was in Athens and his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, this, this might be obvious. You may already know this, but it needs to be said that Athens or Portland is not at all unlike the city that has just been described. The city we live in is full of idols. Do you know what I mean by that? Okay, what is an idol? Well, naturally, we need to quote Timothy Keller here. <laughs> if you've never heard or read anything uh, that Timothy Keller, he's, he's a pastor of a Presbyterian church in New York, um, he actually has some pretty profound thoughts on the subject of idol worship or idolatry. He said that an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. That's what an idol is. It's anything that you look at in an attempt to gain a sense of value, a sense of security and significance. This goes to the very core of our identity and it's the very thing that our creator, God himself, wants to give us. And in fact, we've been hardwired to receive it from him in the context of a relationship. It's why Jesus taught us when we interact with our creator, call him father, because it's in the context of that kind of intimate personal relationship with God that we experience that which, that which we desire and need more than anything else, to feel loved, to be known, and yet accepted, forgiven, loved, secure, and significant. When we look to anything else, and there's a lot that we can look to in this city, that's simply turning to an idol. Now, here's the thing that we need to understand about idols, though, because it's very easy to immediately just assume, like, oh, so you're talking about, like, the evil stuff in the city? Like, uh, like what? Just, like, murderers? Uh, I don't know, what's evil? Smoking pot? You smoke pot? I used to smoke pot. Um, one might argue that it's, I got it. Um, the, uh, there's some obvious things that you might think of as evil idols, but I don't think that's especially helpful because most of the things that we idolize in our lives are actually very good things. Um, like, I'm often tempted to idolize my wife. She's incredible. She's beautiful. She's talented. She's smart. She loves Jesus. Um, I just, I look up to her in so many ways, and I'm often tempted to find my sense of security and significance in my relationship with her. The tragedy is that when I attempt to withdraw that sense of identity, that sort of security from her, it crushes her. It actually destroys our relationship because she's just as flawed as I am. 
well, maybe not quite as much, but she's a human. She's a good human. It's a great relationship. I'm so extremely fortunate to have a wife like my wife, Shirley, but I can't make her into an idol because she cannot give me what I ultimately need and desire. Of course, it could be money, it could be career, it could be other types of relationships, it could be our appearance, it could be whatever, it could be a million different things, and most of those things are probably all good things, things that we're meant to enjoy, things that can enrich our lives, things that we can, that can give us pleasure, things that God might himself might have actually given us to enjoy. But as soon as we look to those things as the core source the thing that we're, that we're hoping to achieve some sense of identity and wholeness out of, then it turns sour, it becomes an idol. And this is what provokes Paul. Where does he go? Where does he go first? He goes to church, to Jewish church, the synagogue. He goes to where all of the religious folk are hanging out. Do you know... And like, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I include myself in this, but do you know, if you want to really see idol worship, like, to the max, go to church. Go to church. It is rampant. I don't mean to be, like, mean, but I'm just saying, most people who go to church are the kind of people who just sort of enjoy Worship. We're into it. We give ourselves to it. It comes natural, as it were. It's very easy to lose sight of who are we actually here for? Who are we meant to worship? Of course, as soon as we begin to worship, um, I don't know, the building, it's gorgeous. You can worship, um, you could worship me, I suppose. It does happen. <laughs> The pastor, the guy with the words. That actually happens a lot. Um, not to me necessarily, but <laughs> it does happen. And as soon as we begin to worship all these aspects of the religion, uh, it becomes a cesspool for idolatry. This is where religion, uh, Christianity as a religion, so to speak, uh, it can go really, really bad. It can become foul. We're simply coming here to get our idol worship on, forgetting why we started this in the first place. It's all a side note. It's important for us to realize that we're not simply talking about all of the, the idol worshipers out there. Guys, it usually starts right here. So, Paul goes to the synagogue. Eventually, he probably gets kicked out. That's usually what happens with Paul. So he starts to mill about in the marketplace, the place where people are coming together, exchanging ideas, bartering commodities. And he begins to strike up conversations with just people who happen to be there, people who will listen. It's Athens, so there's a philosophy scene there. And eventually some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers start talking to them and they get, he gets their attention. So much so that 
they seem to be confused about what Paul is talking about. They refer to this foreign deity that he's proclaiming as some sort of strange thing that they've never heard of. Strange. Is anyone excited to see the second season of Stranger Things? (laughs) Sorry. As I was planning this, I'm like, gosh, I can't wait to see that. (laughs) How strange is this? How strange is it for a bunch of people in the 21st century, 2,000 years later, to come together on a Sunday morning with a bunch of pretty flowers, your tie on, your church pants, (laughs) to worship a Jewish rabbi who went by the name of Jesus, Yeshua, who died but who was allegedly resurrected, and I say allegedly just to be fair, okay? A Jewish rabbi who died and rose again from the dead. How bizarre are we? (laughs) Are we? I think we should be. I think that as soon as this becomes normative, passe, hard to distinguish from whatever other mainstream religion might be out there, I think we've we've lost the plot a bit, or a lot. We're meant to be strange. Now, we live in a city that embraces weirdness, so this this is good for us. The problem is, sometimes we're strange for like all the wrong reasons, right? We mustn't be afraid, though, to be looked at as bizarre people. In fact, I would argue that it's very important, crucial even, that as we follow Jesus, there should be something um, almost troubling about us. Now, it's difficult because we also live in a city where, um, like, reading books and, and being, or at least sounding smart, is really important. Um, I'm not actually from around here, so I'll just put my cards on the table. Um, I was living in Corvallis. Before here, I was in central California for about nine months prior to that. I was overseas prior to that. And I'm still absorbing the culture. I love Portland. I'll just say that right up front. I love my neighbors. I'm over in St. John's. I love the culture here. I love the diversity I love the challenge. I love the, the way people think critically and are easily duped. There's, a, there's, an, there's, a, there's an attractive degree of cynicism about the culture in this city. I actually rather enjoy it. <laughs> but I think sometimes there's the temptation to, to give in to the pressure of, of fitting in. Like, I don't want people to think I'm dumb. That's like the worst thing ever in our city, to come across as like someone who's not read books or listens to NPR in the morning. (laughs) You're like like a social pariah. Guys, we, we need 
to be strange. There should be something about us that's a bit baffling to the people around us. Hopefully for all the right reasons. So they can't figure him out. They seem to think that he's preaching foreign divinities. Another important side note. Now, you might be familiar with this. If you figured out how to work the Google, you probably know this. But there's a, there's a theory that keeps sort of regurgitating itself every hundred years or so. That this idea of the man who died and is resurrected back to life is sort of like a regurgitation of the resurrection cults that predated Christianity during this time. Classic example is Osiris. You, you guys have read about this. You've heard this. Um, now, look, that's a debate, right? Huge debate. It must be noted that the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, the Greek philosophers during the first century, did not come to that conclusion. Okay, they, would have been, they would have known about their gods and the Egyptian gods and all the other gods and philosophies and spiritual ideas that were around in the first century much better than we do. Okay, I think it's actually a bit amusing, slightly annoying how oftentimes we, we seem to think we're experts on like first century spirituality and philosophy as if we know better than the guys who were there. And I'm sorry, you could easily say you're arguing circular. Okay, you're just simply going based on what we read in scripture. I, I know that, but I don't know if there's any other text as reliable or authoritative as the scriptures that we've been given. So I don't know what to do with that. They're confused about this Jesus and the resurrection that Paul is proclaiming. It doesn't seem to fit into any other category. He doesn't seem to be a demigod. He doesn't, he's, not, he's not a human who was like a hero who defeated some sort of mythical creature, died and came back to life in some sort of glorified, that, that would be a demigod. They would have quickly recognized that, like, oh yeah, we know, it's another demigod, cool, we'll, we'll worship him too, it's all good, where's his statue? He, it wasn't that. It was something altogether different and strange. They couldn't fit it into a category. So, that begs the question, and it's the question that they ask, what is the meaning of this. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. What do they mean? Let's read on. So, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's not necessarily um, an insult. He's saying, I can see you're, you're serious about religion. You're serious about uh, the, the, the deeper spiritual questions to do, to do with life. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, the creator... Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. On the contrary, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything from us, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul's being very, very deliberate to say, what I'm talking about is not something that I've dreamt up. I'm not describing to you my delusions of grandeur. This isn't a theoretical God. This isn't a new philosophy. This isn't even simply an idea. I'm telling you about someone. What is the meaning of Jesus and the resurrection? I would say point number one, it is God's personal introduction of himself. What Paul's describing isn't just another thing to ponder. Which, by the way, is what, it's what, all, it's what these guys did. They, they were like professional ponderers. All they did was sit around. It even says specifically that they just sat around discussing, thinking about the latest new ideas. Interesting. Now, I was told one time, the worst compliment you could ever get to a, a preacher after he like, preaches his guts out, that was a really interesting sermon. I'm glad I gave you something to think about. Okay, you'll forget it tomorrow, I promise you. <laughs> Ask me what I preached last week. I, honestly, I'd have to really think hard. <laughs> it's depressing. <laughs> Paul's not simply sharing a new idea. He's talking about someone, Jesus. The scriptures say that There was a time when God revealed himself through the prophets, through the scriptures. He says, but now God has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. God has descended. God has humbled himself out of love, out of a desire to be close with us and become a man. There is no category for this. This doesn't fit into um, the realm of philosophical thought. What Paul is describing is, is a real person. And he goes on to say, because you, you would be right to ask, to ask the question, okay, really? Really? According to who? Where exactly is your research? How do we know that this is true? This is why the resurrection is so central. He says in uh, Acts chapter 17, if we skip ahead just a little bit, verse 29, he said he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now this is certainly not the only implication of the resurrection but it is an important one. How do we know that Jesus was who he said he is? Well, he said, if you don't believe anything else, believe the sign. He refers to it as the sign of Jonah. You guys remember that old Bible story? You ever go to Sunday school? 
Jonah and the whale, but it wasn't actually a whale. It was a fish. And Jesus said, just like Jonah was in the belly of the beast for three days and three nights, I too will enter into the grave and come back again. If for no other reason, believe according to the sign. Jesus, multiple times, consistently, especially as he got nearer and nearer and nearer to his death, foretold it. His disciples clearly had no idea what he was talking about. But he says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. They will crucify me. I will die. I will be buried. And on the third day, I will rise again. I don't know about you, but when someone predicts their death and resurrection and it allegedly happens, it might be worth researching. (laughs) And I'm being serious. I'm actually being serious. You can research this. You can research this. Is there any evidence, historically speaking, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you've never read a book on it, I would check it out. I would preface it, I would qualify that by saying, you, you don't, won't necessarily be convinced that it happened. Gosh, to believe that Jesus was the son of God who died and rose from the dead, that's, um, that's, that's some kind of miracle. That's some kind of miracle to believe that. Yes. God's personal introduction of himself But it's more than that. Jesus and the resurrection, his death and his victory over it, back to life is God's definitive protest in the face of evil. A couple of you know what I mean by that. Do you know what I mean by that? Here's something that's ironic. The Areopagus. Some of your Bibles might translate it as Mars Hill, right? Ares was the Greek god of war. Mars was basically the Roman counterpart, the equivalent. Mars, Ares, essentially the same god, Roman, Greek. Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, was the hill of Ares. This was the mound where people would go to honor Mars, the god of war. This was the very place where the the intellects of this time. Now, the Greek empire was already on its way out. The Romans were taking over. But this is where the philosophers, the intellects, the thinkers, the enlightened ones would gather to ponder the deeper things of life, the meaning of the universe, the gods, spirituality, eternity, and beyond. On this mound where they would worship the god of war, That says something about how people were thinking then and I would argue now. Guys, you know, I hate to say this, I hate it, but I don't believe war is on its way out. I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. I'm always looking for opportunities to chat with people about what they believe, about God, about humanity, about eternity, the future of everything, you know, these sort of like casual things. Every once in a while, um, 
I'll actually just like hit the road. I'll get out, get out in the city. I'll go to the campus at PSU and just walk around. It's amazing how many people are just like sitting. It's, it's not entirely unlike the Areopagus. Go onto a university campus. There's people just chilling out on the campus, just waiting for someone to talk to about these things. And so I do that every once in a while. And oftentimes, I'll meet someone who believes that just given a little more time, just a few more decades, I don't know, maybe a century, and humanity will sort themselves out. We just need some more technology, a bit more medicine. We just need a little bit more enlightenment, evolution. Call it what you will. And if we can just learn a little bit more, we will be able to fix all of our problems. I am not convinced. Call me a cynic. Call me a pessimist. I'd like to think I'm a realist. I would love to think that humanity is, kind of, is, is, is going someplace, that we're getting better, that we will fix our problems. But I read history from time to time, and it would definitely appear as if we go round and round and round in circles. And every time we think we've, we're getting closer to the golden age, someone figures out how to build a bomb and drop it on kids. We've never experienced it in our life, but let me tell you something. If you know anything about European history, the outset of World War I, there was a mindset, there was a way of thinking, there was a culture across that continent where people thought they had become enlightened. This was the golden age. At last, we're entering modernism. We've learned enough. We've learned how to cure disease. We've learned, and then all of a sudden, someone figures out, how to make a bomb. It's like, it's like a kid finding grandpa's magnifying glass. I don't know about the girls in the room, but I'm pretty sure the boys know exactly where I'm going with this. <laughs> My granddad had this big, powerful magnifying glass that he would use to read um, when I was a little kid growing up. And when he wasn't looking, I would grab that thing and as fast as I could, go out in the backyard and just start burning ants left and right. I don't know why. Call it the evil in my heart. But the irony, that the very thing that was meant to be an instrument of, of education, the thing that my granddad used to read with, as soon as he turned, the little boy grabbed that thing and just start to obliterate the little universe around him. This is what we do. This is what we do. Guys, this is what we do. Jesus' resurrection is God's definitive protest in the face of evil. It is God's way of not just saying some more words about our nature or the problem in the universe, it is God's definitive no. No. Evil shall go no further. Amen. This is like a scene out of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you shall not pass. There's an interesting quote. Chuck um, Polinick. 
postmodern novelist, fellow Portlander. Um, you guys have probably heard of Fight Club, yeah? He wrote that. He said, our generation has had no great war, no great depression. Our war is spiritual. Our depression is our lives. There is an evil that exists in this world. It's systemic, it's out there, and it's also inside. We're part of it. Call it a disease, call it disorder, call it simply being broken humans. God recognizes it. He doesn't do a particularly satisfying job as to why it's like this. You know that. I don't know why there was a snake in the garden. The Bible doesn't tell me. It's super frustrating. I don't know why Adam and Eve, who are enjoying life in perfect relationship with the creator and creation itself, would decide to rebel and turn their backs on their good, good father. I don't know why. But I do know this. That God cares enough about us to do something about it. He enters into the world. He takes death into himself. He buries it in the grave. And three days later, he rises victorious back to life. And he says, evil shall go no further. It is God's definitive protest in the face of evil. And God, finally, guys, the resurrection is God's promise in regards to the future of our lives. You may think we're getting better. That's called evolutionary optimism. You may think the world is going to hell in a handbasket and you've got one hand on the ripcord and the other on Netflix. (laughs) You're looking to get out. I love what Leslie Newbigin says when asked about the future. He was asked whether he was an optimist or a pessimist, and he replied, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I love that. I don't know totally what that means, but I know that the answer isn't that things are just going to get better, and I know the answer is that things aren't just getting worse, so let's all abandon ship. I believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And there is nothing that we can face in this life that he hasn't overcome. And guys, if we haven't all concluded this fact, life is really, really hard. If I can just end on a really depressing note. (laughs) I turned 42 in about three weeks. I'm a young man. Yeah? It feels like the older you get, the more you realize you don't know anything about most things. It's a very humbling process, life. One thing I have concluded, though, is that that life is is brutal. It's ruthless. It is relentless. It is hard. It requires some fight, which is 
which is hard for a guy like me because I, I don't know if you, if you can tell by my demeanor, but I'm not a real fighter. I'm just not. I've never actually been in a fist fight. And I'm, I'm happy for that. I used to be very insecure about that. I'm really glad I've never hit, hit another person in the face. You know who taught me how to fight? My wife. <laughs> now don't laugh, don't laugh. Let me finish my point. I learned how to fight when I got married. And I discovered, even though everyone had already told me, I discovered for real how hard marriage is. Guys, it's the hardest thing I've ever attempted in my life. And I've tempted some ridiculous things. But getting married, loving my wife, my lovely, beautiful wife, the way that Jesus loves me. I've had to learn how to fight. Oh, the, the gloves came off a long time ago. I've learned that left to my own devices, I am a selfish fill in the blank. I am, and so are you. So are you. Judge me. (laughs) It is an absolute fight to love people, to love them well, to keep loving them when they don't love you well at all. But because of Jesus' victory over death, his promise to me is that in the end, his love wins. His love overcomes all. The scriptures promise that when I'm my weakest, I'm my strongest because his power is made perfect in my weakness. The Bible describes us as children of God like, uh, like earthen vessels, crackpots, feeble, frail, not especially attractive, but valued, treasured, loved, accepted, full of God's surpassing power inside. This is God's promise that no matter how hard you get knocked down by life, no matter how many times you fall on your backside, Jesus' resurrection is an assurance that God's love overcomes all. Guys, this is why I'm still married. Let me just be really transparent now. I would have given up a long time ago. And my wife is awesome, okay? If I didn't mention it before. But I would have given up in year one because it was that flipping hard, except that I knew my God was the God of resurrection power. And that the darker it got, the brighter his light was to show. His word says, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Guys, when we peer into the eyes of Jesus, when we look to our Savior, when we look to our victorious warrior king, Jesus, the one who conquered death, his light begins to shine out through us. 
And we are empowered to overcome impossible odds where it seems like there is no hope. Hope explodes onto the scene. And you may say to yourself, but I've already failed. I'm sitting here divorced. I'm sitting here with kids who hate me. I'm broke. I'm in debt. My life is falling apart. My news to you today is that we're here to meet with the king who has overcome death. Death. There is no darkness. There is no weight. There is no bondage. There is no mistake. There is no sin in your heart that King Jesus has not already overcome. And our response, guys, it's so profoundly simple, and it's an utter death blow to every one of our egos. We turn from the idol of self, and we turn to the beautiful one. You know why Paul starts out by talking about all of the idols in the city? It's because he's setting it up to say, I'm here to proclaim a better one. These idols, they're going to let you down. Whatever you're finding wholeness in, I promise you, it's going to die. It's going to decay. It's going to fall apart. It will let you down. I've come to present one who's better, who's perfect, who will never, ever leave you. He won't forsake you. He won't stop loving you. He won't stop filling you with peace, with joy, with wholeness, with a sense of significance and security. And his name is Jesus. He's not far off. He's near. He's present. He's personal. He's alive. He's not just an idea. He is God. And he wants to know you. He wants to adopt us into his family. Oh, guys, this is, this is the good stuff. This is where the action's at. Here's the question. Here's where I want to leave us. Do you know him? Have you experienced that? Have you experienced the strangeness of the gospel message that transcends religious idea, even moralistic behavior? Have you experienced what it is to be known by the creator of the universe, to know that you're loved, to be accepted because of who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross?